Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. All right, welcome to CBC today for sermon number two. Thank you, Andy, for that rendition of Numbers 21. That was great. The guy's been gone for three weeks. Give him a mic, let him go, man. Um, it was perfect. Love it. Good to see everybody. We're in the book of Titus today. We're going to be in chapter one, starting in verse 10. But before we go there, if this is your first time at CBC or your 101st time, when we come together and open the word, we, we deal with, and today we're going to do this a little bit, we, we deal with the baggage we bring into the space. We deal with the conflicting culture in the gospel, who God's called us to be and how we're formed outside of this space. And one of the ways that our culture raises us up is to be critics over collaborators or contributors. And so we're just going to take a couple seconds right off the bat and we're going to say that God is here. We're going to say that God is forming us this morning to look more like Jesus as we open his scriptures. And we're going to ask this morning the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us. We're going to ask that the Spirit might put aside our criticalness from our culture and we might press into what God is doing right here and right now as we worship him. So I'm going to pray for us. I'll ask you to join me in praying as we come before God and say, grow us this morning. So let's go. God, I'm thankful to be here. Like Andy said, I'm thankful to come to a place that looks to God in the middle of a culture that often doesn't. Just a reminder that you're in control no matter what's happening in the world around us. I need that reminder. God, this morning as we open your scripture and go to the book of Titus, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you guide us. Holy Spirit, that you speak to our spirit, revealing more of the goodness of God so that it might grow our desire to be disciples of Jesus. If you're comfortable, I just ask you to take a couple seconds and, and say a silent prayer and, and just ask the Holy Spirit to guide and teach your spirit this morning. I also ask that you pray for me, that God might use the preparation and the study to show people more of his goodness, that we might not hear a sermon and see a person, but hear the gospel and see why God is worthy of worship. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. So I, I grew up in the church world. I was never a youth group all-star. I didn't really go, but I grew up in the church world. And one of the reckonings that you deal with is, is kind of growing up your faith. We did a sermon series on it last summer. And, and I think there's some phrases out there, you can Google them, that if you hear, people think our words of God, but aren't really words of God. One of the first ones that pops into my mind, and I don't know if my mom taught me this or somebody else, but that cleanliness is next to godliness. You heard that one? If that's the case, my three-year-old is a lot farther to go than I thought, you know? <laughs> Cleanliness is next to guidelines. Actually, that, that, came from, um, that came from John Wesley in the 18th century. That's nowhere in the scriptures. Another one that I've heard people say comes from the scriptures is, this too shall pass. 
Have you heard that before? Yeah, that's not in the scriptures. You know who came up with that? Mike Didka, right? If you're from Chicago, it's Prophet Didka, but, but we're not. So Mike Didka, when he was fired from the Chicago Bears, got up in front of reporters and he says, like it says in scripture, this too shall pass. True story. And we've quoted it since then, like it came from the word of the Lord. One of, I think, the most hurtful ones is this one. God will never give you more than you can handle. We're going to get to that just a little bit later. There are these phrases that we say that oftentimes aren't necessarily from the scriptures themselves. And, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but why this is true is because simply put in the space in the first century to when Wesley said the thing about cleanliness to Ditka in the 80s to us today, lies travel faster than truth, period. MIT study a couple years ago came out and said they looked at over 100,000 different posts on social media and it said simply that they travel six times faster lies do than truths all around our social posts. On average, false information reaches 35% more people than truth does. Why do I bring that up? Because today is about false teaching in the church. Today is about those things that are said about God that aren't from God. And here's why that's important. Because as long, for as long as people have talked about God and said true things, people have talked about God and said false things. From the beginning of the early church, one of the things they did the most was combat false teaching in the early church. They didn't have the grace and the luxury of online and scriptures and really literacy. So they had to fight diligently to say, no, no, you're getting the message of Jesus wrong. This is what it's not, and this is what it is. You see it in Philippians, in Colossians, in Corinthians, and in Titus. Paul says there are many people who are going to talk to you like they know God, but they don't know God. False teaching exists because correct teaching exists. It's a job as followers of Jesus that won't be undone. Our job to figure out, find, and follow the truth of God, not the false of God. Every couple of years, there's a website that's put together by Barna and a couple of other people called thestateoftheology.com. And they talk about kind of where we are as Americans and what we believe about God. And a couple of years ago, they said, a couple uh, stats stood out to them that more than two-thirds, 69% of Americans disagree that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation and 58% strongly disagree. So white lies aren't really that bad. It said a majority of Americans, 59%, say that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Thank you, Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? It said, literally, as it narrows it down, uh, uh, the idea of Lifeway has garnered a freight evangelical, and they have a fourfold tier of what meets evangelical, just trying to say, we want to ask people that actually are supposed to know something about God. So they asked evangelicals, and they said that 52% of evangelicals believe mostly people are basically good by themselves. 51% says God accepts worship of all religions. And 78% said Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. That's just not true. <laughs> it's a fundamental difference in what the scripture says and what God says. So why we bring this up today is because when we talk about the nature and goodness of God, if we get that wrong, people get hurt. And what what Paul does here as he's writing to Titus is he reminds people that good theology has a place in healthy churches. And then he reminds people of, of a problem they're going to deal with specifically. So you kind of have a two-tiered response in verses 10 through 16 that we're going to tackle today. The first one is broad. It's, hey, this is some things to look for in false teaching. 
And this is how you deal with it as a church. And then in verses 15 and 16, he kind of shines the lens more in their specific situation and says, and this is a problem that you're dealing with, and, and I think it's a problem we have always dealt with. And so we're going to deal with both today. So I'm going to read the whole thing because we're going to chop it up a little bit as we go through it. But verse 10 starts like this. For there are many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those with Jewish connections, who must be silenced because they mislead whole families by teaching for dishonest gain what ought not to be taught. A certain one of them, in fact, one of their own prophets said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Such testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply that they may be healthily in the faith and do not pay attention to Jewish myths and commands of people who reject the truth. All is pure to those who are pure, but to those who are corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They profess to know God, but with their deeds they deny him since they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good deed. So he's going to tackle two things. He's going to tackle the idea of false teaching in a response, and then specifically one they dealt with. So in verse 10, he starts, For there are many rebellious people, idle talkers, deceivers, especially those with Jewish connections. And he, and he points out kind of the nature of signs you need to look for if you're maybe coming into contact with somebody that speaks for God but doesn't speak for what God said, false teachers. He starts by saying there are many rebellious people. And that word rebellious there isn't just they're not doing what God said in one place. That word rebellious means literally they're rebellious to the gospel of God. And what Paul is getting to there is they're not just rebellious in a way that they lie sometimes. They're rebellious in a way that they don't feel like God's good is their good. Because the gospel, what it does, is it makes us all come under what we call the lordship of Jesus, the reign and rule of Christ. When we follow Jesus, it's more than just a ticket to heaven or a set of good morals that'll keep our kids out of jail. When we follow Jesus, what we do is we say that God's way is better than my way, even if I don't understand it. When we follow Jesus, we're saying he made the world. He made us to flourish in the world. He knows what that looks like. Let's go. And what these guys are saying is, yeah, not so much. I'll follow the things I want to follow, but then there's other things I won't. There was an interview I listened to with a high school football player, now college football player. And he d described his journey, and he talked about a tattoo that he got. And I looked at the tattoo, and there's actually like a, a, a hashtag for this tattoo, meaning it's more popular than just him. He got it in Latin, because if you get a tattoo in Latin, no matter where you put it on your body, it's classy, okay? So it's just, just a tip today, everybody, right? So he got a tattoo in Latin. In Latin, it's non decor ducu, which means I am not led, I lead. And it simply talked about this principle that when he was a high school football player and he was a hot shot and he was a state X, Y, and Z and he could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, wherever he wanted, because he had this pedigree, he thought that he didn't need to follow anybody. People that don't follow anybody are dangerous. Leaders, by definition, that follow Jesus, follow Jesus. It's built into the definition of what disciple is. As he grew up, he said, when somebody looked at his tattoo, he said, that's ridiculous and that's immature. When we look at false teachers, the first thing we have to look at is who they follow. And if they don't have anybody to hold them accountable, run. These teachers in the first century world said, I know this, I know this, I know this, follow me. And they did not follow the teachings of the scriptures that they disagreed with. They were rebellious to the reign and rule of Jesus. And so as we look to what Paul makes as a case for the false teachers to run from, we first start by saying, who are they being led by? At CBC, I'm led by an elder board. 
We have a listening session after this because we want to grow together and understand one another and follow Jesus well together. There's not one man at the top that says, this is what we're doing and I follow no one. And he says, so many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers is the next phrase that you see there. That word idle talkers literally means useless and then the word words. So a lot of uselessness and a lot of words on top of them. Depends on the, the, the poll that you look at, but they say the average person, some polls say the average person says about 7,000 words a day. Some would say the average woman uses 20,000 words and man uses, I don't say that 7,000 words. That's the poll that says it. If you have a problem with that and you're a woman, I'll block off an hour in my calendar and we can talk about it this week. Kidding. Um, I use more words than anybody else I know, men and women included, all right? So not all of them can be winners. When it says idle words here, it's not simply talking about the times that we're trying to fill space and time. It's talking about the words that literally sound good but don't have a point and purpose. One of my favorite TED Talks of all time was a TEDx. So you have your TED Talks, which is people getting up there, giving seven or nine or ten-minute talks on something they know. This was a five-minute and 55-second 55, five talk. It's a TEDx out of New York City. It's got 12 million views on the YouTube, and it's called, it's called How to Sound Like You Know What You're Talking About on TED Talks, and I love it because it makes a mockery of my profession. This guy gets up there for five minutes and 55 seconds, and he literally says nothing of substance, but the way that he says it makes you believe it's good for you. You should look at him on YouTube. It's fantastic. He says, I'm going to say nothing. But I'm going to say it. it is beautifully well done. This is what Paul is getting at. We have people up there teaching, and the way they present themselves or their dictation or their pacing or fill in the blank or the way they look and dress and speak, all those things are good, but what they say is useless, literally useless. It's what we run into when we run into coffee mug theology in the real world of problems, you know? That our following Jesus takes way more than one 40-minute sermon, 30-minute sermon. It takes way more than one tagline or two because life is nuanced and God cares for us. So is theology. It's a conversation that's continual and ongoing, and I'm never going to master it, but I can only grow in it, you too. And so Paul says, you want to spot false teaching. Look at people that aren't led by anything and look at people that use a lot of words, but really, when you dig down deep, the words don't actually say anything. And then he says, and they're deceivers, because ultimately what that does is that deceives you and it deceives me. Then he goes on a little while later, and he says, as he skips to verse 12, I think it is, dishonest gain uh, on what ought not to be taught. So he's describing them throughout this passage, and he says, they are rebellious, they're idle talkers, they're deceivers, and then skip forward a couple phrases, and it says, they teach for dishonest gain what not to be taught. And this goes not into the what, but in the why. And I know it seems like common sense, but just ask the question, why are people up there teaching you in the first place? What are they after? And, and usually the answer to that only comes over time, you know? Give them a month or two months or three months or four months. I have a hobby of watching bad Christian television and yelling at my TV. It is a way that I decompress after Sundays. You can ask my wife. I watch and I yell. Last week I was watching and yelling, and a guy came on the TV. And he is a very, 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 very famous, like, I don't know if he's a Jesus guy. I'd probably say no. But he's on the channels. And he's up there doing a victory-a-thon. He's talking about how you need to give him more money because he needs a private jet. Because God called him to a private jet. Because they're not going to let him fly anymore. 
And I was like, man, that doesn't sound like something that I read in the scripture. His friend got up there and said, the reason why Jesus hasn't come back again is because people in the church haven't been faithful givers. And if you give, Jesus will come again. Look, that's an extreme example. It was on TV, though. <laughs> that's an extreme example. But you know people heard that and said, oh, that could be true. This guy's a pastor, you know? Always, always, always challenge why people say what they say. And, and look, we live in a culture in the first century world, there wasn't a whole lot of platforms and streaming for you to get popular, you know? We live in a world where the church can very easily elevate people to positions they never should be on. I am for streaming. I am for pastors that do a really good job teaching. I am for YouTube downloads in the 90,000 realm or something like that. But, but here's what you have to understand is oftentimes when that happens, unhealthy people make the church about them and not about God anymore. And so as you follow and listen to people ask the question, if you took the platform away from the pastor, would he still be a pastor, right? It's a fundamental question we need to ask one another. It's a fundamental question I need to ask myself because this is my job and I'm a middle child and I like attention, you know? So he, he's saying, watch out for these people that, that say stuff but don't say stuff, that aren't led by anybody, that fundamentally deceive you from the gospel and that really aren't in it for God's good but their own good. And then he goes on and he uses a phrase, he says this, a certain one of them, in fact, one of their own prophets, he said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy and gluttonous. He's quoting a philosopher named Epitomes here in the 6th century BC. One thing you have to know about this, this is a very well-known guy. In, in this world coming out of kind of the Greek control of the world, philosophers were worshipped in some way. Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, and this guy came out of that camp. And he has this phrase that they all knew. And it's kind of an overarching statement about all of them in Cretan culture. It's like if I said to everybody here, hey, Texans are arrogant, well-armed, truck-driving Republicans. You'd say, arrogant, really? Right? <laughs> <laughs> As a side note, I think George W. Bush is one of the funniest men that you can follow. If, if you have any, regardless of political affiliation, if you want proof of that, just type into Google George W. Bush versus the poncho and watch the inauguration thing a couple years ago. But he was asked about Texas arrogance, and I love what he said. George W. Bush said, some folks look at me and see a certain swagger, which is Texas, is what we call walking. I love that guy. <laughs> We do, though. So the point of this philosopher is he's saying, man, this is kind of true. So whether you fit into these categories or not, you kind of be like, okay, <laughs> all right. Sure, that's kind of who we are. And so this philosopher makes a point that says how we're known around the world is we're always liars, we're evil beasts, and we're lazy gluttons. He's describing the culture that the gospel is taught in. It says they're liars because literally in this world, they believed and they told people that Zeus's tomb was on Crete. Zeus was a god. He can't die. So the rest of the world thought they were liars because there's no way Zeus's tomb could be on Crete. It's as they were evil beasts. And this is kind of a tongue-in-cheek jab at the people. Crete was known for not having any wild animals that would kill you. So when it says evil beasts, what he's meaning is you're bad enough. Your, your little town, place, island doesn't need any dangerous animals. They got you guys. <laughs> and then he's saying that you were gluttonous. <laughs> You hear the next phrase. It says that they are lazy gluttons. There you go, everybody. They're lazy gluttons, which just means that they want their good at the expense of others as fast as possible. He's describing a culture. And what he's doing in the book of Titus and right here is he's saying, when you talk about the gospel, understand that the gospel transforms the culture. Don't let the culture transform the gospel. Don't teach the message of Jesus through the lens of your people. So don't be liars. 
Don't be driven by desire. And don't use others for your good. Those are bad teachers. When I think of our culture today, I think that those line up decently well, right? Don't be liars. <laughs> don't be driven by desire. And don't use others for your good. That gospel isn't the gospel of God who came to serve and die for you. Over and over throughout this book, he's going to talk about this nature of the gospel that seeks institutional reform through individual transformation. He's going to talk about this idea that the gospel came to change culture, not the other way around. And he's reminding them in this moment that you're too close. You're flying too close to the sun and the culture in is changing how you talk about the goodness of God. Don't let that happen. Be different from that. And so part of our job as we look and say, how do we spot false teachers? As we look at the gospel and we say, is the gospel changing us in our culture or is the culture changing us in our gospel? And that just takes time for us to step back and say, what do we value as a culture? And what does God value? <laughs> what do we value as followers of Jesus? What do we value as Americans? And which one's winning? And in this culture, he's writing them saying, the gospel's not winning and that's not who God really is. And so naturally, He's saying, this is, how you fault spot, this is how you spot false teachers. This is what you do about them. He says, those people who are teaching, they must be silenced because they mislead whole families. There's a really great book. It's one of my favorites. It's called When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman. And it just kind of reorients our perspective to the first century world of what God said when he called us into family in a very uh, collective culture. He says that, that literally what Jesus does when he comes is he says your loyalties are going to lie differently than those around you because now your galvanizing good is not who you were born to, but who you were reborn to in Jesus. Your galvanizing good isn't your nationality, but your identity as a follower of Jesus. Your galvanizing good isn't your city, but it's literally your citizenship in heaven. So what he says is your new loyalty lies with those who love Jesus too. This is your family. He re-up and he reorders our allegiance to one another. That's where all the love one another phrases come in. This is how people will know we're followers of Jesus. We love one another radically, regardless of what they look like or where they come from as God's creating a new humanity right in the middle of this one. And so he says, you must silence those people because they mislead whole families. And this is what we get into. Here's why we speak against bad theologies, because damaged doctrine damages people, fundamentally. You might not say, I'm not a theologian. That's okay, you don't have to be, but you have to understand that if we talk badly about God, it reflects badly on God. So, I mean, those things we said up front, Right? Like, this too shall pass, for example. That's not always true. What if it doesn't? Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he begged God to get rid of him. God never did. What happens if we say God says this too shall pass and then it doesn't? What do people think about the confidence or aptitude or majesty of God? Or, or maybe you want to go with the, the God will never give you anything more than you can handle phrase. But here's the problem with that is God often allows things that we can't handle to push us closer to him. Doesn't give it to us, allows it. The whole point of that verse in 1 Corinthians is to show us that there are things we can't do. That's why we need God in the first place. That's why we need others. When we misinterpret that phrase, into God will never give you more than you can handle, what we're doing is letting a rampant individuality from a Western culture change how we read the scriptures. And so when we have bad theology, people don't see the right picture of who God is. Damaged doctrine damages people. And so Paul says those people need to be silenced. 
I've seen it. I have a good friend of mine who grew up in a very, very unhealthy, very conservative Christian movement. Um, and to this day, he's in a really healthy church in Dallas, and to this day, whenever this really healthy church asks him to be a member, he kicks back hard against it. Because he has such baggage about the control that was established over he and his family growing up. Damage doctrine damages people. And so why do we fight for a healthy picture of God so that people see a healthy God worth following and worshiping? I love the practicality of it, you know? Don't miss this. God says, when there are false teachers, do you know what you do with false teachers? You silence them. Do you know why you silence them? Because they hurt people. Not because God's going to be mad at them. He is. Not because you're going to get a failing grade in your Bible test. You will. He says, you have to silence bad theology because people are going to get hurt. And theology, good theology, points people back to a God who loves them. So why do we care? Because God cares about us. And the study of God shows us that. And when it doesn't, people don't see a God that loves them. So let's get into that word silenced a little bit. I don't know about you, but I grew up in, like I said, the Christian world. And one thing we're really good at as Christians is if you say something wrong, <laughs> we send you to Christian jail for a little while, you know? We pull the books from Lifeway, and you got to go to timeout for a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I think when we look at this phrase, this word silenced, by the way, is used only this time in the New Testament. It's found in an ancient writer named Josephus one time. He used it to talk about bridling an animal. Uh, it's used by Philo about 17 times. It, it, it has a purpose to it, not merely preventing any and all audible activity, but he, it has a connotation of silencing these individuals for the purpose and goal of their repentance and subsequent positive rather than subversive involvement in congregations. What he's saying there is you silence people so that they might see where they're wrong and grow. I think one way that we are influenced, that culture influences us, is this whole cancel culture movement, you know? As Christians, I think sometimes we kick back against cancel culture, and we should. Here's the difference. I think that Jesus never cancels people. He can cancel ideas. I think as Christians, we should never cancel people, but we can say you're wrong in what you said. So, so when false teachers come in, the goal is not to kick them out of our midst because they're going to poison us. It's to shut them up so that they might grow and know and see a good, healthy picture of God. There's a big difference there, huge difference there. One is unloving to protect those people that we love, and one is loving to protect both the people we love and the person that God loves. When I first got this gig, man, 14 years ago, I think, in November, so you can be thinking about gifts. Um, 14 years ago, in November, I took a group of middle school kids to a camp, and this guy got up there. He's a good teacher. He had a bad moment, and he got up there, and uh, he did this one to 10 test. This is like the final day of the camp, and so that's when, you know, you hit all the emotions, make the middle school girls cry, and have confessions of faith, and so he said, hey, we're going to take a quiz, one to 10. Uh, one to 10, are you a liar? You know, two, four, whatever. One to 10, have you stolen anything? Just fill in the blank with all this morality code, and then one to 10, if you're going to die tonight, do you know where you'd go? Okay, <laughs> let's just pull back a little bit. Because you have all these kids being like, well, I'm not a great person. Everyone's going, well, maybe a six. And uh, so I pulled these kids out afterwards, and I said, hey, let's just rehash that real quick. This dude's a good dude, but that's not a right way to say what the gospel is. And I said, hey, you might have circled six, nine, eight. Maybe you were a 10 on the lie chart there. But if you trust in Jesus, you're also a 10 on you get to go to heaven. It's a binary proposition, right? And so we, we talked about it and said, so we're going to give grace to this man that probably didn't mean what it sounded like, but know where you are, know whose you are. Let me give you a closer example. At CBC, 
Uh, back in the day, like back in the day, I want to say like mid-90s, so I was in the third and fourth grade, everybody, you know? And half of this room's like, okay, and half this room's like, I'm leaving right now, you false teacher. So I was in the third or fourth grade, and um, there's a guy named Ian Cook that, that basically built this church. <laughs> and he, uh, he, he told me one time why we had membership here. I guess we were growing a lot, and we were just trying to plug holes with volunteers. And he said he, he got in the car one day, and he asked his kids, what do you learn? And I forget what they said. All I know is wrong. Like, not a little wrong. Like, Jesus didn't really walk on water. He levitated above it. Like, like really, really wrong, you know? And he was an elder, I think, at the time. And, and so at that time, we kind of realized as a church that we had no control over what was being taught. And so we instituted membership simply to say that if you're going to serve and teach the kids, you're going to believe these, like, core doctrines. It's a doctrinal statement that we believe now. And so you sign a document saying, yeah, I won't teach kids that Jesus is one of the ways to God, not the only way to God. You know what I'm saying? It's the idea that we come along as a church and say, hey, look, if you don't believe these core doctrines of Jesus, we're not going to kick you out of this place. We're going to love you to life in Jesus, but we're not going to give you a platform to teach it. That's okay. And so it's not silencing forever. It's just sit down and stop talking for a while until you learn the goodness of who God is. So he says, this is what you do with false teachings. You silence and then keep going. You rebuke them sharply that they may be healthy in the faith. Again, that word rebuke there, it means correct them rigorously because the intent is that they might grow in the faith. Sometimes I think as a church, this is where we get things wrong because we're more convinced or concerned with, with, with making a point over making a difference. We're more concerned with being right over growing people up. We're more concerned too often about our pride in, rebu- in rebukes and other people's personal growth. And so what that looks like is me saying exactly what I need to say at the expense of your emotions, at the expense of your baggage, at the expense of fill in the blank. What happens so often when we rebuke people is they don't see the God that loves them. They see the God that hates them. Matthew 18, good example. Matthew 18 is the passage in the New Testament when Jesus is talking about church discipline. It's a passage when Jesus says, if people in the church fail you or act in sin, this is what you do. You go to someone else. You go to them first. And you say, hey, man, you hurt me and you're living in sin. This is not okay. If they say, Charlie, I don't care, then you bring others. Hey, it's not just me that sees this. It's these dudes that you love that see this too. It's going to hurt you in the end. Please stop. If they say, Charlie, I don't care, you get some elders involved. They come in and they say, hey man, seriously, what you're doing is not healthy for you and our church. Please stop doing this. He says, if they don't listen, kick them out, right? But people stop reading there. And I feel like that's been the narrative of how we rebuke people. You got to go. But in that world, the point of rebuke like that was to show them the seriousness of their sin and welcome them back into the community. It was always corrective with a healthy end in sight. And even after that, if you read the text in Matthew, it says, and if they don't come back, then treat them like a tax collector. Remember how Jesus treated tax collectors? <laughs> he loved them. He had dinner with them. He didn't say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. It's this beautiful depiction that Paul is saying, even if you find false teachers, you're not going to let them speak. You're going to love them well, and you're going to rebuke them with the purpose of healthily growing them up. And here's the problem sometimes with our church today is we want grace for me and truth for you, you know? And I think in this moment, what we need to remember, it's because we passionately love God. What we need to remember is that God calls us to rebuke people with the same grace that he called us to in the first place. That's why we remember the purpose of rebuke is to grow others up, not just to remind us that we're right. My daughter this week, we were driving in Highland Village, and 
She is in that fun phase as a three-year-old where a whole car ride is filled with questions, one after another after another. And so I put my headphones in and I put the silent mode on. Um, <clears throat> I'm kidding, kind of. So we're driving and dad, dad, dad. And so finally we get somewhere and the car starts beeping. Dad, what's that beeping? It's the car. Dad, but what's beeping on the car? The dashboard. Dad, why is the dashboard beeping? And she's not going to let it go. And so I finally said what I didn't want to say in the first place. It's because your dad doesn't have a seatbelt on. Okay, short trip, all right? Shouldn't have said it, but it was the truth. I'm not going to lie to my kid. I'm a good father, or in this example, a bad father. Pick whatever side you want to be on. And I said, it's because I'm not wearing my seatbelt. And she said, oh, no, dad, right? And she said, dad, the cops are going to come, and they're going to take you away from me. And I thought, what episode of Paw Patrol are you watching? I have not seen that one. She said, Dad, the cops are going to come and take you away from me. And I said, oh, kiddo, stop. I didn't even let her keep going. I said, that's just not true at all. I, I said, They're not gonna, not, they cannot take you away from me. This isn't double, oh, kidding. They cannot take you. Love the cops. They cannot take me away from you. That will never, ever, ever happen in that moment. We rebuke gently because I'm trying to grow her up as well as remind myself, too, of the goodness of God. I said, kiddo, that's never going to happen. They won't ever do that. Nothing can take me away from you. So I lied and then didn't lie in the same space, you know? But it's that idea that Paul has here of when people are wrong, we stop it, we call it out, and we say, this is not a true statement because I want to grow you up in the faith. So does God, even if you don't know what you're talking about. So like I said, there's a, a big point about false teachers and then there's a specific point. And so the big point about false teachers is simply shut them up to graciously grow them up, Right? How do we deal with false teachers in the first century church and in this world? We shut them up to grow them up. You need both components of that. We don't let them keep teaching until they finally get it, and we don't talk to them like God doesn't care about them. We come to them and say, this is not the goodness of God that you should be following. This is not the God of the scriptures. And then two in verses 14 and, I'm sorry, 15 and 16, he's going to press in a little bit. So he's going to give them a, an example of what they're actually dealing with. You see it throughout the text. It says in verse 14, do not pay attention to Jewish myths of commands and people who reject the truth. It said up top that they should not taught what ought not to be taught. And, and the way the Greek construction there is literally that they're adding words to things. They're saying things they shouldn't say on top of. It says in, the, in verse 11, especially those with Jewish connections, and the literal translation there is of the circumcision, what they were speaking against was a Jewish practice of doing more to earn more of God's acceptance. Very common first century world problem when Jewish people accepted the faith because they thought their faith for generations was based on how they acted, not who Jesus was. And so he presses in here and he says, don't pay attention to Jewish myths about things and people who reject the truth. And specifically in this context, they were saying you had to do X, Y, and Z Specifically, it's going to talk about circumcision and then eating certain things and sacrificing certain things to earn the favor and approval of God. I, I, I know it's a first century issue here, but I don't think it's that far off from us because I think it's part of our baggage too. Just not as Americans, but as people. I think we're always trying to earn favor and approval. I think we're always trying to earn favor from God and we forget that grace says that God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Not because we earned it in spite of us not earning it. 
So he's going to go into this kind of diatribe in 15 and 16 about exactly what happens if you try to fill your days with a religion that tries to earn God's approval. You know? Because here's what happens. When you add things to Jesus, you take away from Jesus. When you add things to what Jesus needed to do to save you, you take away from what he did to save you. I'm a foodie. I like good food that I overpay for. And I love, love restaurants. There's one in Dallas I'm trying to get a reservation to now, but I can't because they take reservations once a month. Um, and it starts at midnight on the 1st. And last month I stayed up. Uh, it was actually on a Saturday night. So Sunday was the 1st. So I stayed up till midnight to get a, a reservation at the expense of the sermon. You're welcome. And, and I, I, I lost track of something and it was 12.02 and I got online and the whole month was filled up, right? And what I love about this restaurant is, I know you think I'm crazy, that's okay. Uh, what I love about this restaurant is in fine print and then bold print, it says, there will, be, there will be no modifications made. I love chefs that say, this is what I'm giving you, and if you want to add salt, you're taking away from what was perfect, <laughs> you know? And the Chili's is not that restaurant, but Chili's also is not Jesus, all right? What I love about this is simply by saying to a chef that, that knows his craft, that's done it well, that made a menu, that took him years to put together, is by adding something, saying, no, you're taking away from this thing that was perfect. By adding anything to the work of Jesus, you're taking away from his perfect gift of grace. We fall in that trap because it's really hard to accept something that we didn't earn. But that's also why grace is beautiful. So Paul says it like this in verse 14. 15, sorry. All is pure to those who are pure, but to those who are corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are corrupted. He's making a broad statement. If you want a good parallel story to go with, go to Mark chapter 7, 1 through 20. What he's simply saying is, you guys have missed it. The point of the gospel is to come into spaces and places and restore them and transform them into something good. The spaces and places don't make you bad. You started there to begin with. (laughs) And so he's saying that, hey, if you follow me, you can eat whatever meat you want and you make it pure because your intentions are good, which put into your body doesn't defile you. I think Halloween's a great example of this. So Halloween started in a not-so-Jesus-friendly place. There was bonfires and, and, and chants to ward away ghosts. But now we're going to have a movie night on Halloween and invite your neighbors so they might see Jesus. What we do is we come into these spaces and places and say God can transform them for the good of his purposes. That's what he calls his gospel community to do. So when when he says, all is pure to those who are pure, it's an overarching statement, a principle that says that we can eat where we want to eat and we can celebrate days we want to celebrate and we can do it because God is good and he's bigger than the things that oftentimes people think take away from God. This is not outright sin areas, by the way, so keep that in mind. But he's saying that simply, if you think that what defiles you is what goes into you, you've missed the purpose. And then every action that follows is going to be wrong because you missed the point and purpose in the first place because your minds are corrupted. And then he doubles down. In verse 16, they profess to know God with their deeds but deny him since they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good deed. What he doesn't mean there is that people that don't know God can't do any good. What, what he means is they're going to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, but they've missed the grace of God in the first place, and their actions of merit simply show they don't know a God of grace in the first place. It's the religious cycle 101. It's exhausting, right? The roller coaster of religion that I messed up, I'm no good, God hates me, I'm sorry, he loves me, I'll never do it again. Oh, dang, that was yesterday, you know? this exhausting roller coaster of meritocracy and not the freeing 
control of grace. And so he says, you think you know God, but you don't because your whole expression of God is based on your actions, not the person and work of Jesus. So broad statement is we silence, we shut up false teachers with grace that they might know and grow. The specific statement is simply this. In this context, and something we need to hear again and again and again, in this context and for hours, is that human goodness can't buy God's love. Period. Human goodness can't buy your salvation, and human goodness can't, can't, can't buy God's affection. That we are saved through the work of Jesus and only the work of Jesus. So for his people in Titus, he's saying, know how to deal with false teachers. And two, if you don't know grace, you can't know God no matter how hard you try. Because when we talk about false teaching, there's two sides to it. There's my responsibility to defend the truth. And then there's the ways that I've been impacted and affected by it. There's the ways I'm going to stand up for what is good, what I read in scripture, and then there's the places that I know I've been impacted and affected and have changed me and maybe give me a misaligned view of who God is. And so he's saying, hey, stand up with grace to the people that miss God and understand that if you want to know God, it begins with grace in this current context. And so for us, we do what it says. You grow in your knowledge of the scriptures so you can defend the God who's worth worshiping. And, and it, it should look like more than just me or whomever you watch on a Sunday morning or go to church at. It should be more than that. We should dive in on our own often because, it's not because God's going to be happy with you if you did a five-minute devotional today, but it's because we get to know the God of the Bible who's worthy of worship, and then we get to paint a better picture of who God is. So why do we stand by sound doctrine? Because sound doctrine points to the beauty of Jesus. And without it, doctrine that isn't good hurts people. So dive in. We have so many classes and small groups, and right now, media at CBC, you can join with a bunch of way better teachers than me talking about Jesus on the interwebs. It's a push to know God more so that when we come into contact with people who are trying to say bad things about our good God, we can say, stop it, that's not who God really is. So we study, and we know who God is, and we do these things in community. And we come together, and we say, hey, if there is false teaching among us, let's talk about it. Let's be gracious about it. Let's show love to people who need to see a better picture of God. Because fundamentally, in this church, what they're dealing with is a culture of liars and a culture of people that abused people for their good and gain and a culture of people that took the gospel and transformed it into their good, not God's ultimate good. And what Paul is calling his people to do here is to remember the goodness of God and stand up for it. Be different. Because people need to see a better picture of who Jesus is. People need to know the truth of what God stands for. People need to know that God loves them and cares for them. And that's our job. <laughs> to say, this is the God I worship. This is why he's worthy of it. So may we be a church that does that, does that well, does that graciously, and does that because we know God, because we know grace. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you've given us a scripture to know and understand you, first and foremost. That we have so many resources and different places we can go and people we can talk to to grow our understanding of your goodness. Give us a passion for that. Give us a desire to know you more, to study your scripture more, so that we might paint a better picture of who you are to those who don't know you. And God, I'm thankful for your grace. 
that we're saved through Christ alone. <laughs> Might that just be a gentle or overpowering reminder this morning that we can't buy the goodness of God because Jesus already did. And might that free us up to follow even harder because grace is beautiful. We pray these things in his name. Amen.